Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars get together and dig into a seasonally appropriate passage of scripture derived from the Revised Common Lectionary. I'm your host, John Drury, and we're glad to that you have tuned in this week. We hope that what we have to offer you will be edifying and enjoyable and perhaps equipping as well if you're preparing uh, sermons or teachings, lessons for others uh, in the upcoming week or weeks. My guest this week is Amanda Drury. She is a associate uh, professor of practical theology at Indiana Wesleyan University and the director of the Imaginarium and the author of uh, one book and another that will be coming out soon. So keep an eye out uh, for that, as well as numerous articles and travels and speaks. So you can see her around Amanda Drury. Uh, and she and I are going to be looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 as the text, the Old Testament lesson for the fourth Sunday of Advent. As always, be sure to rate and review as well as subscribe and share and get the word out about the show. And with that said, enjoy the show. So we're looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Would you be uh, willing to read? And sure. I'll say a prayer. Yes, I will read. All right. Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil, and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in, dread will be deserted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would grant to us the wisdom of mind and of heart uh, to see and to hear what your Spirit is saying to the churches today by way of this word that was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. We ask, God, that you would be at work this hour so that it would not be simply our own knowledge or our own ignorance, but rather your seemingly foolish wisdom that is above all, that your wisdom would be at work in us, and most of all, at work in all those who are listening in, separated by time and space to our conversation today. Lord, we know that you can cause the rocks to cry out, 
And so we will be faithful as much as we are able, and by your grace we shall be, to make some sense of the text before us, but we entrust ourselves fully to you that what we offer forth would be pleasing in your sight and perfected not by us, but by you as you go forth by your word into the hearts of all those whom you wish to hear your word. So we entrust ourselves fully to you in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Okay. Well, good old Isaiah 7. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think I'll make a meta comment and then, and then maybe ask, not maybe, I will ask you for some thoughts you might have uh, about this text today to get us started. But, uh, you know, it's not unintentionally, you know, we're, we're coming, this is for the season of Advent. This is the, the fourth Sunday in Advent. So the last Sunday before Christmas day mm-hmm. proper, um, and obviously the passage in verse 14 of a young woman or virgin, there's a translation issue there, uh, will, you know, be with child and bear a son and call his name God with us or Emmanuel, right? This gets quoted by Matthew in his gospel. And so, um, you know, it's often the case that the Old Testament lesson and often the Psalm as well in the lectionary are selected not only because they are relevant to the season at hand, but even specifically connected to the new Testament passage. Right. Um, and that's why sometimes when people first start doing lectionary preaching, I don't know if you remember ever being tempted by this to try to like figure out the like magical connection between all the texts. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I intentionally have been kind of just having us focus on one text each week to really focus on it. The lectionary is really just a kind of uh, a somewhat arbitrary curriculum for us to use to really let the text speak. So even though, you know, it's like uh, spoiler alert, the new Testament has a particular interpretation of verse 14. Right. Um, and that's why it would be on the schedule. Uh, I don't want that to over determine what we do with the text, right? Here's the text. Here's what's before us. So right. let's see what it, what it might have for us. But I, I wouldn't want to like pretend that that's, this is one case where you can't even pretend that there's like an obvious <laughs> Christmas context to why the church would want to read this text. And we can get there uh, in the middle or the end of our conversation, but we certainly don't need to start there. We can just start with the text at hand. So with that said, what are some observations? Uh, what strikes you um, today as we read this text afresh? Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by how it says the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Yeah. Then we move down and it's Isaiah speaking. Is this the Lord speaking through Isaiah or are there two voices going on? Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to picture the scene of how this is playing out. Yeah, let's camp on that because that grabbed me too and see if there's a... So, so we've got, you know, Adonai and out of respect for Jewish practice, I don't pronounce the tetragrammaton, the Y... You know, Y-H-W-H, you know, mm-hmm. I'll just say Adonai, but it means the other one, the the word that you shouldn't say. Anyway. Uh, so not Voldemort. You can say it. Uh, I just, I was taught not to say it, to just use the, use the rabbinic convention of 
mispronouncing it Adonai. Um, so, uh, Adonai Dabar, right? Spoke this word, um, to Ahaz, right? And then in verse, uh, 12, you've got Ahaz responding. And then in 13, it simply is, he said, um, and he said in verse 13. So, so translations sometimes need to make a decision about who the antecedent of a pronoun is. He, mm-hmm. right? I think your version went ahead and decided to say Isaiah. Yes. It would also be possible to, to say that Adonai said. Hmm. Okay. Or the safe choice that NASB, which is what I have out here, is then he said, right? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't make a decision one sure. way or the other. Yeah. Listen now, House of David. Now, as it, uh, moves forward it says is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my god as well so the my god language seems to make it seem that you know god probably doesn't refer to god as my god yeah yeah so it sounds like it's probably isaiah talking you know therefore the lord himself will give you a sign now sometimes god speaks of himself in the third person though um so then this pushes back to verse 10, right? Which is the question you were asking is in a prophetic narrative, you're going to have the Lord speaking and you're going to have a prophet speaking. And in terms of the blocking of the scene, those don't function as two different characters. Hmm. I don't think, hmm. mm-hmm. right? It's not like booming voice from heaven and then the prophet comes in and interprets, right? right? right. That's, that's how you have it in usually an angel that's how in like an apocalypse right daniel and in in apocalypse of john in the new testament you you get that right an angel says a thing mm-hmm. and then the prophet asks a question right you kind of get that distinction right but in in kind of classical prophetic literature you tend to not have there's just a much greater kind of there's there's a much uh greater kind of identification of the prophet with God in the story, right? He just is speaking for God, right? Yes. So when you ask your question, how to picture the scene, I think the only way to picture it is here comes Isaiah talking to Ahaz, uh, speaking on God's behalf, I guess. I don't know. You're smiling. Do you have a different take? No, no, I, I, I don't. Um, it's radio, so I have to say when you're smiling. Um. <laughs> and then I have to say, no, I don't when I'm not yeah. <laughs> I have a hard time going too deep into these verses without looking at what's becoming before and after. Yeah. I mean, because, because the prophet Isaiah, he's coming in and he's speaking to a particular situation, which is clear from verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke. But but the the ask a sign ask a sign for what what's going on here? So it's I, I sometimes find passages like this tricky in the lectionary where you're given this one little bit. Yeah. Um, See, so this is an example where again the lectionary is not it, it's a it's a jumping off point, not a you know rigid boundary. So of course, in some cases, it's worth glancing at what's coming up to make sure you're not like you know stealing your thunder from the next week. Right. But having done that already, I can tell you there's no other readings from chapter seven. So like if I were, I'm giving this advice for anyone who is riffing off of the lectionary and especially with old Testament texts that are often highly truncated 
because you can tell whoever worked on the modern revised common lectionary, as it's called, um, knows there's a bunch of other texts. And so they're really shrinking down those OT texts to make room, hmm. right? But if you're going to be preaching on the Old Testament text, you need to read a larger section, not only for your study, but maybe even in worship have this longer section. And I don't think it'd be a waste of time at all for us to just do some reading out loud on the air of maybe this, even in this entire chapter, because I think there's a clear narrative structure. There, yeah, there is. And there is. I think that'll draw us in. Obviously, we can't do the whole book, but even just uh, when we picture the larger section, I think is going to help a ton. So do you want to just take turns reading a little bit of that, like paragraph by paragraph? Yeah, maybe? let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. So I'll start with verse one. All right. And then I'll hand off to you at a certain point. We'll go back and forth and Great. see what comes. Okay. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. <laughs> Go ahead, verse three. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Armin, the son of Remelah, because Aram, with Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah, has plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah, and cut off Jerusalem, and conquer it for ourselves, and make the son of Tabiel king in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people. The head of Ephraim is Syria, and the head of Syria is the son of Remaliah. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Awesome. Hold on a sec. Was Does your version have Syria or Samaria? Oh, I'm Samaria. Well, I wanted to know if that was a translation, textual variant. Operator or, uh, error. Operator right error. <laughs> okay. Samaria. <laughs> Samaria. All right. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from Adonai, your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask nor will I test Adonai. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. 
For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Let's keep going for a little bit. 17. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. On that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the sources of the streams of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines, and in the clefts of the rocks, and on the thorn bushes, and on all the pastures. On that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, higher beyond the river, with a king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will take off the beard as well. Now in that day a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and because of the abundance of the milk produced he will eat curds, for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines, valued at a thousand shekels of silver, will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. And for all the hill, and as for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's much better. Yeah. The whole chapter. Yes. Right? Oh, it's all, I mean, you know, we'll still do some interpreting, but like, I mean, there's some new pieces now that mm-hmm. complicate, but there's also a lot more clarity um, for me. And I think we're hopefully in displaying for our listeners the, both the permission and even the encouragement, the exhortation, read these texts in context, right? <laughs> and, and, and when you're, the fact is, is we spent a year going through the gospel lectionary. And when you're using the gospel reading, it tends to be through one gospel and they're texts that tend to be back to back. And so each week you're kind of building context. Right. Whereas now when we go into these Advent readings from Isaiah, they're just jumping all around the book. And so we're not getting the kind of context that really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just any quick observations before we take a take a break and oh. come back and get in deeper. Yeah. I feel like we see a different side of God when you when you have this in context here. In verses 10 through 16 – all of a sudden God looks compassionate. Uh, so up until this point, we, we know that they are, that they're terrified. What was that verse? The heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people are terrified and there's Assyria over here, the other two armies over there. And so when the Lord is saying, ask for a sign, it it, it sounds more like a, like a, a comforting scare. Like it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Ask me for a sign. Let me reassure you. Whereas without the context, it almost just sounds like like God is saying, "Hey, look how strong I am." Yeah, you know, like like a little kid, like like look at my muscles. <laughs> um, so so bringing in the fuller story, I, I just see God caring for His people here. Yeah, and in that context, then um, the care is spoken into a very specific kind of fear of what seems to be a siege. Right. This right, is, right. this is two nations coming upon and who've sieged around. And so the idea of, uh, of a birth 
during a time of siege, mm-hmm. which is usually kind of a bad idea, <laughs> right? It's just one more mouth to feed, right? right? That a birth in the king's house, in the royal house, right? And the promise that before this kid can tell right from wrong, he's going to be eating honey from the comb. Now, you don't eat honey from comb during siege, right? Right, In right. siege, you're rationing every little, you know, uh, and you're not eating fresh things from out in the fields. You only have what's been stored up in the, in the city first mm-hmm. time of mm-hmm. siege, right? So I think the imagery of a siege – and, you know, I'm picturing like, and this is silly, but I'm picturing Helm's Deep, right? From like, right, you know, like surrounded, <laughs> right, right? Right, And um, And limited by just what you already have stored away for this attack. Um, and they're not successfully defeating Jerusalem because, of course, Jerusalem's a really hard place to take. It's up on the top of a mountain. You know what I mean? It's able to – but it has cisterns and it has – Good old Hezekiah's tunnel, right. you know, right? So it's got what it needs to to last out a pretty long siege. Um, and yet there's terror. So that's just kind of concurring with you, but kind of putting it in the very particular context of a, of a siege setting. And then all of a sudden the promise that actually within a cup, within a generation, the whole script is going to be flipped and Israel, the Northern kingdom that's assaulting you now in cahoots with a Gentile nation is itself going to be wiped out um, and be a barren wasteland, you know? Uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, that's exciting. I say uh, we take a break and come back and then do some interpreting. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text here with my guest Amanda Drury and we're looking at Isaiah 7 verses 10 through 16 and after some initial conversation we realized we're just going to look at the whole chapter so we zoomed out to the rest of the material and ate up most of our uh, first unit of the uh, <laughs> podcast just reading but I hope that's um, valuable to you so what's kind of weird here what, what do you think we should maybe dig into to make a little bit more sense uh, with anything in particular that that strikes you as a, an interpretive question. I, I think it's interesting that even after he refuses to ask for a sign, he's still given one anyway. I know. Yeah. It seems like like it should be a well. Fine then. Okay, you missed your chance. Which in some ways is kind of comforting to know if I'm if I am refusing something of the Lord. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm 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 closing a door. Of course, God is more than capable of of. Um, overrunning my requests or desires there. Oh, and I mean, this gets into uh, troublesome waters, uh, <laughs> sort of troublesome theological waters. But I mean, I don't know. You could take verse 10 as a little bit of a test even, right? I mean, that's how he takes it. I'm not going to test the Lord, <laughs> Ahaz says, right? Uh-huh. Give me, you know, you want a sign, you know? And this is when it's helpful to actually see see Isaiah as the mouthpiece of the Lord. That in this moment, Ahaz the king could be doubting that Isaiah is giving good advice, yeah, right? He he right. he might, and I'm not saying Ahaz is like this great guy. What I'm saying is <laughs> that Ahaz is, um, as far as most of the kings of Israel were concerned, prophets were advisors. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They they didn't always see the prophets the way the prophets saw themselves. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? As 
mouthpieces of God, right? right? Yeah, they call them mouthpiece of God, sure, but they would have lots of prophets and they might think, well, which one was giving me the best advice here? Do you right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so you can almost see Ahaz kind of being sort of uh, engaging in a kind of religious righteousness here in the face of Isaiah's, hey, ask for a big sign, mm-hmm. you know, like, because there's already been uh, these words. This is the follow up yeah. to this promise. Hey, you're, you're, you're going to be fine. You know, and maybe Ahaz isn't buying it. And Isaiah is like, ask for a sign. High is heaven, deep is Sheol. And he's like, no, 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 I would not demand a sign. And he's like, you're getting one anyway, right? <laughs> I, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if, if his, no, I don't want a, a sign is, is more of a, I'm not even going to entertain that. Uh, I, I wonder if he, if his mind is already made up, I'm going to, I'm going to, go in cahoots with, with Assyria. Hmm. Uh, Cause we know that's eventually what, what he does. So, so maybe it's a boy. I, I don't even, I don't even want to hear your good news. I don't, I don't even want to let in a glimmer of hope, but this is my, I've already, I've already made my connections here. Cause, cause we know he's not a good King. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see, what is it? Second Kings. This is a, this is a guy that's sacrificed children, which is really interesting then to have a child brought up here. Oh, it has does not just yeah, Ahab. Yeah. Oh man. Ugh. I want to double check that now, but yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, he's definitely not on the, the he's definitely on the naughty list, not the nice <laughs> list. I just didn't know that he was one of the child sacrificers. That's worth double checking. Yeah. Yeah. So Second he's, uh, is he right before? He's right before Hezekiah, I believe. Yep. Oh, this is so much fun. Damascus okay. Falls, Ahaz, here he is. Chapter 16. In the 17th no! year of Pekka. I was What's wrong. That? I was wrong. Keep going. Keep going. Who am I thinking of? Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. So he's on the naughty list. Okay. That's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire. Okay. Yeah, there yeah, it is. This is, this is, yeah. According to the abominations of the nations, whom Adonai had driven out before the sons of Israel... He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Right? So I mean the 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 the, the traditions of Canaanite religion that precede um the Israelites were child sacrifice and specifically the sacrifice of the firstborn. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which is referenced in Exodus. Mm-hmm. Uh but you redeem the firstborn by bringing a, you know, uh replacement animal right right in its place uh to redeem but the the firstborn does belong to god uh god is agrees with the canaanites in that regard <laughs> but not in the uh you don't actually have to sacrifice something right the right, and the right. burning especially right it's like no the so yeah no he's a child sacrificer i'm I'm curious where the isaiah passage fits in i know, I know you can't always you know smush sure. the scripture together but uh because we do know he gets in cahoots with Assyria, even mm-hmm. um, creates a replica of their of their uh, not their ark, but their their altar in in Jerusalem. Well, I mean, it's absolutely crucial to interpret for interpreting this passage to make it very clear that Ahaz is not a moral hero from the perspective of Second mm-hmm. Kings mm-hmm. or from the perspective of Isaiah, and in fact. Uh, at least in the short term, Ahaz's, uh, submission to and treaty with Assyria, uh, in the short term brought protection 
right. and safety it's Ed. to Jerusalem. And in fact, is the proximate fulfillment of the promise in chapter seven. Yeah. So it's not that God is speaking through Isaiah saying, if you shape up your life, mm-hmm. then good things are going to happen to you. It's God just saying, I'm going to save Jerusalem on account of my election of David and of this city, right? Yeah. I'm I'm going to save you, which actually goes back to your then original question about your original interest and mine too in verse 10 and through 13, this dynamic of being invited to ask for a sign, refusing and God giving it anyway. Right. Right. This is not God's protection of Jerusalem, at least in this. We're not saying always and everywhere because clearly things change over the course of Isaiah, right? But at least at this, during this stretch of time, God's protection of Jerusalem is not contingent on hmm. Ahaz's righteousness or the king's righteousness or even the king's begging yes. for it. Because yes. he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he's trying to get help from Assyria rather than from Adonai directly. Right. So, um, again, that, that also is theologically troubling in a, in the best kind of way. Yeah. I mean, he, so he gets rid of the gold and silver, the temple, he defiles the, the, the altar, the, the, the temple by building this altar. And then he seems to just live out the rest of his life in, in peace. Mm-hmm. Peace might be too strong of a word, but he's not, there's, there's no, there don't seem to be any negative consequences for, for him that we see. He's the father of Hezekiah. Yeah. He is. Yep. Well, I mean, that's not irrelevant, hmm. right? I mean, you know, he keeps talking about it as the house of David, right? God interacts with a king like Ahaz, even when he's – actually, even the statement over from Second Kings, he did not walk in the ways of God as his father David did, right? right. Even the description of his unrighteousness is framed in terms of the fact that he is a descendant of David. And that's the most important feature of his identity – as far as God is concerned. Right. Right. God's, God's covenant is with the, is with the house of David, right? Not with each individual descendant. Individual descendants can break that covenant, but God's covenant is faithful from his side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always do find it interesting. I know this isn't a pod, uh, a podcast on Hezekiah here, but I always find it interesting <laughs> how you can have a, an evil king. With a son that then is following in the ways of the Lord. Cause the first thing Hezekiah does when he becomes king is, is he's tearing down the altar. He's, he's bringing back, trying to restore the temple. Mm. Uh, and is, I mean, they, they mention his mother. Is it the connection with the mother? Is it, is it David's legacy? Well, this leads us directly to, well, two things. One is a question I don't want to entertain immediately, which is what is it about our modern assumptions that make us find that weird? Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Uh-huh. The, the kind of individualism uh-huh. that assumes that yep. you have to have good parents. Yeah. <laughs> like as if the, 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 the children, the, a, an individual child is the product of an individual <laughs> good parent. Well, our kids are. Well, yeah, but I mean, part of us, maybe they are. <laughs> Modern life's different. Uh, yeah. so we yeah. can explore that. But I mean, the fact is, is a royal, child might not actually interact with his father very much at all. That's a good point. Right? He might be entirely sure. raised by a whole range of wise men and cousins and priests and takes a village, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Takes a royal house. So so that's one issue that we might want to come back to in the third section uh-huh. if we go there uh-huh. with the sermon. For now, it raises a direct questions about verse 14, the famous passage quoted in Matthew 
right? Um, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the young woman will be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is even prior to the New Testament, a sort of famously obscure passage, Hmm. right? So all the, I just was reading a little bit. Uh, last night and this morning, a little bit about the history of interpretation around this text. So Dan Freemeyer, who's been on Daniel Freemeyer has been on the, on the show in front of yours Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and co-wrote, um, with a a colleague of his, uh, sort of history of interpretation Hmm. around this passage. And it's just whole wide ranges of, of ways of reading this text. Very, even among the Jewish rabbis, right? So there's a lot of, um, both the problem of is it to be translated virgin in the sense of virgin birth or just virgin in the sense of young woman. I mean, it's the same word. Uh, so maiden would maybe be a way of, I know that's kind of a archaic term maiden, mm-hmm. but that might suggest the kind of double sense. Okay. A okay. way it could be taken either way. Sure. Um, and this name, Emmanuel, is this an actual name or is this just what's being declared? In other words, is this Hezekiah? Right. It doesn't say it is, but I mean, that's one of the options mm-hmm. is to interpret this as this kind of godly sign. Right. right because right. even though, like you said, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, um, this great transformation could have had a pretty big impact on a guy like Hezekiah growing up in this sequence, even if this wasn't him. Right. Um, anyway, I, I don't know. It's just really it's a really kind of fascinating question of how. Like you said, putting it in the context, not only what comes before, but with Hezekiah coming after, mm-hmm. that there's this kind of renewal in the house of David about to come mm. that might be precisely what God is bringing about or protecting Jerusalem to make room for by way of his God's foreknowledge. Again, sticky theological questions, but, um, and that this new life of this young woman having this child during the siege. It's like the, the new life is springing up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, like when a little flower comes up out through the snow, right? When there's this kind of spring is emerging, even while it seems uh, dark. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting too cheesy, but. No, I like it. I like it. What are you laughing about? I'm, I'm laughing at the, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? What a, what, a, what a funny line. Is it not enough that you're wearying the people around you? You got to weary God, too. <laughs> <laughs> weary. Oh, I like that. That's almost better what, than what do you try, mean? try the patience. Try the patience. I think that's a. Yeah. Trying the patience. Well, that I think is beginning to even lead us into homiletical directions. I mean, what do you think the. But we don't have to take a break yet. I just want to ask the question. I mean. What do you think the message of this text is for us? Again, not how do we craft our message in light of it. That's homiletical, right? Right. But the hermeneutical question, not that they're rigidly distinct, but the hermeneutical question is, what what is the Spirit saying to the churches? What is the message that God is has for us today through this story, through this event? Maybe, I think there's a sense of, there's a trajectory here. Do you want to get on board with this? It's a, it's, it's almost an, an invitation to participate in this, this movement. There is a trajectory. There is a movement. There's something larger mm-hmm. than 
just you. <laughs> I like it. I like it. He does show up in the, Ahaz does show up in the genealogy too, Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Pretty sure. Well, that's the, I'm pretty sure that's the uh, gospel text for the, uh, ah. for that Sunday. So, cause it's Matthew. We just, it's year A now. So we just switched to Matthew. I think yeah, that's there worth he is. Ahaz, at. the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah of Manasseh. I mean, it's this critical, you know, this critical moment in the history of Israel. You know, uh, Israel and Judah have been divided now um, for many generations um, and, you know, easily could have been wiped out uh, together, right? Right. And at first glance, it seems that Ahaz was making the smart move uh, in uh, linking up with Assyria and it was Hezekiah's choice to to thumb his nose at Assyria. Sure. Because it's the Assyrians who who wipe out right. Israel, right? The Northern Kingdom, Ephraim. It's a other nickname. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, here you have Ephraim linking up with Aram to try to take out uh, Jerusalem, right, and install their own puppet king. Um, so you know, and you've got Isaiah who ends up being this, you know, this book that moves us towards the exile later and the rise of Babylon. But here in these early chapters, it's during the, the height of Assyrian power. Right. And as it says in verse uh, verse 8, Ephraim is going to be shattered, right? And we know that that's by precisely by uh, by the Assyrians, that that's going to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, so to bring back your trajectory, the uh, this sense that there is something larger, this larger story that you're a part, part of. Right. Um, and are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to see it? Right, a sign. Verse fourteen, asking for a sign. I I don't know. I feel like this is kind of taught. We've been talking around it. If it's okay, but I mean, and again, you know, this is fourth Sunday at Advent. Well, it's weird preaching on Isaiah, but I think it'd be a blast to kind of mix it up, right, <laughs> and really preach from these texts during Advent to build up expectation. Sure, what does it mean sure. to look for a sign? What does it mean to ask for a sign? What does it mean to not ask for a sign? To not test God and demand signs? I feel like the 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 role of signs in the Christian life may be in the mix there in terms of the message hmm. that we might want to explore, which I think would be connected up with the the larger plan, the larger trajectory that you called it. Right, right. Um, let's take a quick break and come back and start doing some sermon starters. All right. back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 16 in the larger context of chapter 7 as well as in the larger context of the Advent season in which uh, the church anticipates the first coming of Christ as well as uh, his second coming, the first coming having already happened uh, for us, but not yet for the authors and first hearers of uh, texts like Isaiah 7 as well as his second coming, which we still await. Um, so with all that uh, reminder of context, um, let's explore some sermon starters. Where might you go with this story? You've preached on Hezekiah before, haven't you? A long, long time yeah. ago. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, d- I don't know that there's a sermon starter in here, but I'm, I'm just stuck on the signs, on the signs. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking of, um, Gideon asking for a sign and, uh, you know, a wicked and depraved generation asking for a sign yep. and Hezekiah how, and, and, and Mary, how can this be? And sometimes God gives signs. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he's mad that they asked. Sometimes he's not. <laughs> it's really yes. unpredictable. Yeah. And so there's almost a sense yeah. of, okay, well, when God does give a sign, you better pay attention because okay. he doesn't give these arbitrarily. Yeah. Although, ironically, kind of sounds like you just said it seems kind of arbitrary. <laughs> it seems, ar- yeah. yes, it does. Yeah. Well, what is a sign? So a sign points. Right. It's a pointer. Mm -hmm. It's directing our attention elsewhere. Um, you know, a stop sign is, you know, not all signs are instructive, but I'll go with it. You know, a stop sign is instructing us to stop. Right. And you could stare at the stop sign and drive right through it. Right. You could, (laughs) you could be caught up in a sign, but not in fact aligning yourself with it. And vice versa, right? You could uh, stop there, even if there's no stop sign, right? So I think uh, this isn't a stop sign. It's a street sign. But the street sign in our neighborhood for the street we're on had been knocked over for like a year, remember? Yes. We still don't have a street sign up. <laughs> Is it still not there? No, it's oh not. <laughs> but see, I don't. we don't need it. We live there. <laughs> right. We right. don't need it. We don't need the you sign. You don't need the sign when you know where to turn, right? Right. Um, but... When someone's trying to find our house and never been there before, it's it's a problem. Um, so the sign points, it directs away from itself to a reality. And and in, in principle, signs are are in principle, they're dispensable, right? You can move beyond them. In principle, you don't need them. If you know where to turn, if you have the person in the car who knows, I mean, I'm stretching the metaphor now, but right. If you've never been there before, but I'm sitting in your car. I can tell you when to turn. Right. And so in principle, you don't need the signs. That's often how I interpret it. Mm. It's Jesus' mm-hmm. language around mm-hmm. the signs, right? He's like, if you demand signs, that's a problem because you're, you're, you're asking me to, 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 to make faith easier. But out of compassion, I will perform miracles, which therefore are a sign of the kingdom. Mm. And out of compassion for your lack of faith, I'll give you signs to help. But as Jesus says in chapter 14 of John, believe in me. And if you can't believe in me, believe in the works that I do, which are his signs, right? As they're referred to elsewhere in the book of John. So the idea is like, I kind of want you to believe in me, but I've offered these signs to you as, as sort of temporary crutches, for last of a better word, unto faith in me, hmm. right? But the fact is, is like you said, sometimes the signs dry up. Sometimes there's no sign there. Or the sign that is there is troubling or confusing or hard to interpret, right? So the signs can't do all the work. They just can't. Um, So, and maybe maybe this is too much of a leap to Mary here, but signs point elsewhere. Ahaz has every reason to be distracted by what's going on around him. He's surrounded by enemies and, and, and God is trying to get his focus elsewhere. Focus on the sign. You know, look at where the sign is pointing. And, uh, thinking of Mary and what she was surrounded by here mm-hmm. when she's, when she is pregnant, uh, how easy it would have been for her to have been distracted 
by the by the multiple factors that are mm-hmm. at work here with her with her becoming pregnant. And uh and, and and to just keep looking the the where is the sign pointing? Where is this headed? Which I which I think is springs out from out which springs her magnificat. The mm. the why she's not having to fight against the forces, the the forces of Herod or the the shame or the traveling. It's she's focusing on the sign. Yeah, I'm I'm because you have a sermon on the Magnificat, right? I'm I'm hearing like for you, since you have the uh you have neither the blessing nor the curse of having to preach every week <laughs> and you're a special special speaker. Uh-huh. I could imagine that this whole conversation might be like a new paragraph in a sermon <laughs> that you do over and over. <laughs> but that's good. That's a good thing. Uh, but, uh, but I can see there being a little insight here about the, how she would have also felt besieged. And the mother of our Lord can be a, instead of this, there's a kind of, there's a simplistic defense of Matthew's citation of Isaiah seven. That wants to say, no, I'm, let me prove that the Hebrew actually means virgin here or whatever. You know what I mean? Proving the virgin birth. It's like, no, Matthew believed the virgin birth because it happened, not because of the finer points of, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the translation of a word in Isaiah seven. Sure. But so there's, there's the kind of like defensive posture of connecting this with Matthew, but there's a less defensive. There's a more, uh, I think a deeper kind of insight that you're exemplifying, at least in terms of how to relate a passage like Isaiah to the Christmas season and to our own lives is to say that, okay, yeah, maybe I'm not like literally like the king or even in a royal house being literally besieged mm-hmm. by enemies, right? And it's not just that I'm figuring out how to apply this to my life. There's an example of that already in the mother of our Lord, right? right? Mary in a very, you know, in a, her kind of simple way, experienced a version of this whole story, but on <laughs> from the outside on a smaller scale. Right. But in reality, the greatest scale of all. Yes. Yes. Um, so I feel like there's a there's a there's a highly narratival sermon that tells three stories. You tell the story of chapter seven. Mm-hmm. There's the telling. Either go to the Mary story or go to a story in our you go to the Mary story and then third, a story from our lives in our time um, or flip it, kind of end with Mary. That could work too. I don't know. Do you have an opinion on that? All I, all I like to talk about with you is structure, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I think you got to end with Mary. Okay. Uh, that seems right too. Well, just, just looking at the, at what Sunday this is, if, if you're not bringing out something from, the, the birth of Jesus, people are going to be mad. It doesn't matter if your sermon's sure, great or yeah. not. But, but, but yeah, to end up on Mary here, I think is a. And it's nice to not end with ourselves, actually turn to ourselves a little. Right, right. In halfway through the sermon. Mm-hmm. And then kind of maybe start to ask for further guidance and turn to Mary then as someone who lived halfway between, you know, Ahaz and ourselves. Sure. And, 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 if we're looking at the actual birth of Jesus the following week, then then Mary, mm-hmm. this Sunday that we're reading, yep. is still in this looking for the sign. She's she is she is embedded in that experience. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the whole genius of Advent as a season 
um, that we get totally inverted in our modern way of uh, Christmasizing all of December <laughs> and then taking the tree down at two o'clock on Christmas day, right? Like not, not having a fast that builds up to the feast, but just feasting and, you know, binging and purging <laughs> and, you know, instead of the, and it's not about getting the liturgical year, right? It's the, it's the, the rhythm of feasting and fasting of, of Advent as a season of waiting for something that's not yet here. Um, and then when it's here, staying with it for 12 full days, good 12 days of Christmas isn't the countdown to Christmas. 12 days start on Christmas day, right? And move forward <laughs> right, right. to Epiphany. So I think now the calendar, again, I'm not a liturgical fundamentalist. It's the insight of liturgical rhythms, right? That, so I'm completely with you to say that that's part of why I think preaching Old Testament text during Advent is a very good idea in general. It's not the only reason we've turned there that on the podcast, but, um, to enter into that, the, 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 the pre, uh, arrival of Christ is the space in which we're invited to enter into in Advent, which includes Mary's own experience. Right, she just right. kind of is the whole story of Israel in miniature. <laughs> right. 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 Um, so no, a, a kind of highly Mary focused turn towards the end of the sermon would really bring it home to a kind of worshipful, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, turn at the end of the sermon yeah. and a very Christmas kind of turn without rushing there Sure, in a kind sure. of proof texty way. Yeah. I mean, Matthew's allowed to proof text things. He's allowed to just cite something and say <laughs> that proves this, but you know, we should maybe, uh, because you know. He has a special authorization by way of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit <laughs> that we might not want to be claiming for ourselves. Yeah. But, uh, 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 that um, sounds good. I don't know. Do you vibe with that rhythm of kind of the three parts? Oh, I was thinking of the sermon structure that I was kind of pitching to our audience, a kind of a sort of first third that focuses on this story, the, the, the siege of Jerusalem story, you know, and just kind of paint the picture, tell a story, make it interesting. And then the kind of bring it all to the moment of, and you could actually kind of leave it on a cliffhanger of this word that comes and, you know, this, uh, this young woman is going to give birth, you know, and the whole house is wondering, you know, what does this mean? Hmm. You know, hmm. and then shift to our own life. That's the part that I'm getting stuck on and I need your help on, yeah. you know, yeah. to bring that up to, and you could bring it right up to the birth and do the same with Mary at the end, bring it right up to the resolution but leave it hanging. And then what would be something in our own lives, maybe a specific story that would be mm -hmm. of our own time that might really click with this theme of kind of bringing it right up to the edge. I think, I think I would go, I think I would go Isaiah us Mary, because I think what Isaiah does here is, is it creates space for our, for us and our most terrified yeah. selves. So to get partway through a sermon and to allow us to identify with this, uh, people shaking as trees mm -hmm. in the forest shake before the wind to see there is a place for that kind of terror and trauma yeah. during the Advent season, not just because Herod is killing small children, mm -hmm. but, but even beforehand, before any of that even, even happens. Because uh, A has killed small children, <laughs> his own. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So to be able to um, 
for people to see themselves in this passage uh, and and being encouraged to to move beyond Ahaz. You know, don't don't pull an Ahaz here. You're in this position. You might be feeling those forces. Look for the sign. Look for the sign. And then we know of someone else who looked for the sign and transitioned them yeah. into bring it bring us into Mary to show us what that looks like. Yeah. You were asking though, what story about us? Are are you yeah. thinking a, a like a, an example of a story? Sure. I mean, I'm open to anything. Um, just trying to brainstorm a little. Uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know that I would bring in a personal story here. Yeah, you maybe it's just because maybe it's just because one's not coming to mind. Yeah, I think I think I would just more identify with the with the with the emotions of the text. The place it's bringing us to. Man, verse two is so good for that. The imagery is just so great. Oh. His oh. heart and the hearts of all the people <laughs> shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Yes, yes. And then you keep going because in, in, in verse four here, uh, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You know, even even allowing people to identify wh- where what are these these things mm-hmm. that terrify us? They're, they're smoldering stumps of firebrands, especially when you feel like you're in a position of of, of no hope or how could this ever get better? Uh, to be able to see evil as just two smoldering stumps of firebrands. This is a version of your Magnificat sermon. I can hear it because it's the magnifying. It's the the yeah. perspective, right? Yeah. What yeah. what you know? Do you? Can you begin to see the obstacles and the evils in your life? Not making them good, not making them fine, looking the other way, but to see them as stubs of smoldering firebrands, Keeping right? Keeping them in perspective to yeah. the greater sign. Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. That resonates with me. And you see that embodied in, in uh, Mary's own faith. You see it embodied in Joseph's faith that comes out in the Matthew story. It's a little bit right. more Joseph centered. Right. Um, and you see it in the Hezekiah story that comes after, right? right? You know, so it's beginning to have that kind of perspective. I like it. I'm drawn into it. We don't have to have a whole outline. I just, <laughs> I like, I like getting in the weeds of thinking, ah, how does this really work? Sure. As a sure. sermon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. You might be terrified, but those things that are frightening you, they're just. They're just smoldering stumps of firebrands, and sixty-five years from now, they're not gonna—they're not even gonna exist. But look, <laughs> look to the sign. Yeah. Look to the sign. I like it. I like it. I dig. Well, thanks so much for giving an hour of your time and your insights and your uh, risking experimenting with different ideas and. Oh. flipping around and thanks for bringing in a little bit more of Ahaz's story from second uh, Kings. I, <laughs> I mean, I'd been studying the passage, but I've just kind of was immersed in the, the specifics of the Isaiah text. So like really getting the sort of broader historical narrative in mind is so helpful. And you're so good at that. Well, and I forget I, to do that. I, I think, I think, I think there's a whole lot more there too, with the fact that he's sacrificing his own child. I, I, I know there's got to be a tie yeah. in there for some some sermon that that could yeah there's something there we didn't get there here but no and i mean even that can be i mean that's the the horror of the story they has doesn't begin with the siege right 
um, there was already um, horror that preceded, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, boy, and so much of this is just you can't thwart God's plan. Yeah. You, yeah. You try to kill your your son. I'm going to give you another one. Not only that, I'm going to give you one that's coming from a maiden. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... There's a really fun sermon. This it's a totally different vibe than the one we just talked about. That's a don't get in God's way. <laughs> God's a coming, right? Um, there are sure. There's all kinds of places where God makes uh, negotiates with uh, accommodates himself to our whims and mistakes and desires, right? But then there's at the heart of the story, the plan's moving forward with or without you, right? You know, um, I mean, I, I love preaching sermons like that. I don't always know how to, although actually having said all that, that's not a different sermon because it's, that is the, that is the fundamental perspective that funds the practical stuff we were talking about in terms of perspective. Hmm. You have to believe that God has, um, that God's up to something and that, that on the things that matter. Nothing can get in God's way. If you don't believe that, then looking for signs is just magic, <laughs> right? It's just trying to, yeah, it's just superstition. It's just, oh, you know, it's my, I'm a Capricorn and, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not right. So I, I think they're actually connected. I think that's the kind of theological insight hmm. that would be either implicit or maybe made explicit in the, in the course of the, the sermon that we've discussed a little bit. Well, thanks to all our listeners for listening in and hearing our half-cooked ideas as we're uh, wrestling with this beautiful passage. Um, I want to say thanks, as always, to uh, um, Eric and to Todd for all their great production work and to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thank you, listeners, for all the times you've uh, shared and subscribed and rated and reviewed uh, the podcast. Uh, Keep that up. If you haven't done that already, please do so to get the word around for what we're doing here. And With that said, I say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.